Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. In the summer of 2019-2020, Australia burned. Temperatures soared and smoke blanketed much of the southeast of the country. But who was impacted? And who is the most vulnerable to future catastrophic events? Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast that digs a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and our region, and draws on the latest research to help us to better understand and address those challenges. I'm Sharon Bessel. I'm Professor of Public Policy at the Crawford School, home of Policy Forum Pod, where we offer a range of degree programs in executive education to help make sense of a complex world and to deliver better policy outcomes. Check out what we have on offer at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. And also check out the range of expert commentary and analysis at policyforum.net. Today, we are talking about wildfire and vulnerability. During the bushfires in Australia during 2019 and 2020, 34 people lost their lives, over 18 million hectares had been burned and almost 3,000 homes destroyed. An interim report on the impact on wildlife released in July 2020 estimated that up to 3 billion animals died in the fires. In January 2020, a survey of 3,000 adults in Australia, undertaken by Nick Biddle and his colleagues here at the ANU, found that 78 or just over 78% of people were impacted either directly or indirectly by the bushfires and subjective wellbeing had declined. It was catastrophic. As Joelle Jurgis points out in a recent piece in The Conversation, Australia has always had climate variability, but that variability is no longer caused by natural factors alone. Moreover, variability is becoming more and more extreme. We are facing more frequent disasters, wildfires a year ago, currently devastating floods, and we're also seeing those floods in our northern neighbours at the moment in East Timor and eastern Indonesia. And so what are the effects of disasters on health and wellbeing, and who is most impacted? To talk through the ways in which natural disasters, particularly wildfire, and Vulnerability Interact, we have two fabulous guests today. Quentin Grafton is Professor of Economics, Australian Laureate Fellow, Convener of the Water Justice Hub, and Director of the Centre for Water Economics, Environment and Policy at the Crawford School of Public Policy here at the Australian National University. 
In April 2010, Quentin was appointed the chairholder of the UNESCO Chair in Water Economics and Transboundary Water Governance. He has a range of prizes to his credit. He is an outstanding um, researcher and we are delighted to have Quentin joining us today. Hi, Quentin. Oh, hi, Sharon. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. And joining Quentin and I is my brilliant pod partner, Dr. Anna Grenta Hunter, who has swapped seats today and is going to let me ask her some questions about her research and her clinical work. Anna Greta is a physician and a cardiologist with a strong focus on patient-centred care with preventative medicine focus. Anna Greta's research interests are around health and public policy development, particularly the influence of public policy approaches to health outcomes. And as our listeners know, Anna Greta is passionate about the social determinants of health. What our listeners may not know is that Arna Greta is also the chair of the ANU's College of Health and Medicine's Bushfire Impact Working Group, which has aimed to respond to the immediate needs of community, as well as to long and medium term prevention and preparation. Arna Greta, it is great to have you with us today on the other side of the mic. Sharon, it's wonderful to be with you always, and it's very interesting to be on the other side of the table again. So I wanted to to start today perhaps with a a more personal rather than a research-based question um, and to ask you for your recollection of the fires that hit Australia in 2019-2020. I know I personally remember the smoke that blanketed um, our city in Canberra. I live in the south of Canberra. I could see Mount Tennant on fire and the fire moving towards us. And I remember driving to the bottom of our hill one day um, and seeing a range of fire trucks. There were eight or 10 fire trucks, some from Queensland, army vehicles parked there ready to respond and feeling something between absolute terror and incredible gratitude that we had people there defending our community. Um, But Quentin, what what are your recollections of that awful summer? Oh, I wish I could forget them, but uh, I think it was the duration of it all. So we are used to bushfires, and uh, I hate to say it, we're also used to getting smoke, but never on the magnitude and the catastrophe that we had in 2019 and 20. And as you will recall, and I recall, you know, it, it, it gets underway around September of, uh, of 2019. And personally, from my perspective, I was obviously living in Canberra. We had the smokes, smoke for, for months, but, uh, but I uh, went to the south coast of uh, New South Wales for uh, just after Christmas, and that's when the uh, the fires hit uh, that that particular location, which is around Marimbula, Bega, Eden, and uh, I remember getting up in the morning and just saying, "This is <laughs> this is really bad," and um, yeah, so we we went to the emergency um, shelter located in, in Marimbula. There was a lot of me- I suppose, lack of information about what was going on. A lot of people there were on holiday. They didn't know what to do. They had tents. You know, you couldn't really breathe outside. The smoke was so bad. And so uh, we, we readied ourselves to, 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 to evacuate, but uh, we didn't. And uh, they did open up the road the following day. I think it was the following day. And we left at 5 a.m. I think they opened it around that time. So we managed to get out and just had enough um, – enough fuel to uh, to drive back because there was no fuel to be obtained uh, in, um, in Marimbula or anywhere else. So there were several people uh, that I know of who, who, who couldn't, 
couldn't get out for for a considerable period of time, several days. In fact, I think it was even longer than that. Yeah, so, you know, all those memories, smoke, fire. I remember in the evening, um, uh, the thunder and the, 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 the lightning. And that's, I had read about that, I'd heard about that. <laughs> and then I could see it, you know, it was just a few kilometers away at, at most. And you could just see this, this trigger of it going on with the fires. And I said, whoa, that was, that's really, um, yeah, uh, kind of scary and, uh, and, uh, amazing at the same time. Yeah. So those are my memories coming back and the, the smoke. I'm asthmatic as well. So I, I had, you know, probably uh, more of a challenge than than other members uh, in my family but uh, yeah it was a a challenge and uh, glad that uh, it's over for the moment <laughs> and that's the key isn't it for the moment um Anna Greta what are your memories of that summer mm, I think Quentin's just done a superb job of painting the picture that will be resonant with such a huge number of people who live in this southeastern corner of New South Wales and the ACT it was an awful summer and I remember my anxiety started for that summer January beforehand when we had that very unusual heat wave and certainly in the communities that I'm part of we had increasing concern about the summer ahead and then it unfolded in a way that we were had predicted and yet we hadn't prepared for. Those days, that day after Christmas, those couple of days of really intense fire and smoke, I'd taken my family down, they were down just past Eden um, they were, they were down on the other side of Twofold Bay. And so then I came back up to Canberra and I was working on call at Canberra Hospital. So I was looking after people in hospital over that period of time. We were dealing with the fact that we had some smoke inside the building, dealing with the unfolding issues on the coast. And of course, like everybody, we're checking our phones on such a regular basis, looking at how the disaster was unfolding in other locations. I remember going out to a friend's place on New Year's Eve and everybody there had somebody on the coast who, for whom um, it was a significant period. And so that, that dual um, catastrophe of the local environment here in Canberra with the most horrendously bad air quality in the world, as well as such a huge proportion of our community who were under direct threat from bushfire on that coast. What an extraordinary time. And I, I really do, I, I remember the phrase uh, that was uttered by one of our politicians towards the end of last year, that we always have bushfires. And I thought that was a way in which it gave us permission to relax into our summer holidays. And yet I think it was probably one of the most dangerous things that we could have done. I think recalling the personal experiences of that summer are really useful before we start talking about um, what some of the the research tells us and what some of the evidence tells us, because I think that that sense of fear and terror, but also of helplessness is something that it's useful for us to keep at the forefront of our minds when we talk about these these catastrophic disasters. And it can sometimes become abstract, um, but certainly at the time it, it wasn't. Quentin, when you started talking about your own experiences, you made the point that we see the fire season starting so much earlier, and we certainly saw that um, in the summer of 2019-2020. What are we seeing um, in terms of, of the evidence around trends of wildfire over the past, say, 40 years or so? Yeah, so the, the trends are, are very clear. So it, we're certainly getting hotter temperatures and higher maximum temperatures as, as well as mean temperatures. And that particular period, the 2019 Black Summer fires, we'd also had droughts. So we'd also had a dry period as well. So we had a very, very high 
a fire hazard index is a, there's another name for it, but that's essentially what we had, which is a combination of soil moisture measures as well as what's happening on the on the ground. So that measure was uh, was the highest it ever been, I think, for sixty percent of Australia. So it's it was that that sort of extreme situation, and and Anagata made the good point that uh, this was coming in the sense it had been seen and and had been talked about. So. Um, I forget the first uh, the person's first name, but Mullins, I think, was the the one of the the people who who led a, a group of uh, fire commissioners. I, th- I think it was at twenty six or so, yeah. twenty odd, and they had uh, made the call to meet with the prime minister. I believe it was in April yep. of twenty nineteen, and uh, they made the call that this was this was coming, and uh, of course it did come, and people did pay some attention, but 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 uh, clearly the people who who needed to make those decisions that needed to be made didn't make uh, them as they needed to, despite the fact that this was a catastrophic situation. And getting back to your situation, uh, the situation in context of trend, so not only do we have uh, uh, increasing temperature, we have that drying period for that three-year period. We also see it not only in Australia, but we see it globally. We see an increase in the, in wildfires, uh, not only in Australia, but in other locations in the world. And so uh, the expectation is that this will get worse it won't get better. Obviously, any trend that will have variability, and there's going to be variability. For example, we've had a, a fairly wet uh, 12 months uh, here in the, where, where we're currently living in Australia. So that has obviously made it a lot easier relative to, to let's say, the 2019-20. But the, the trend is, is very clear. We're going to have to live with this. We're going to have to manage this in a much more effective way. We had a Royal Commission that looked at and provided a bunch of recommendations about how we could do it better in Australia, all about information, monitoring, uh, resilience issues. Uh, so there's a whole thing, a whole series of things that can and should be done, but we can't get away from the fact that it is going to get worse. Uh, we have a lot of flammable material in Australia. We have uh, temperatures that are getting hotter, uh, and uh, and there will be periods of time, as we've always had, but there will be periods of time where it will also be considerably drier. You put the all together, and we're going to have some seriously bad um, bushfires or, or wildfires, as they as they say uh, outside of Australia. Which is terrifying when we think about what our experiences were a year or so ago. Um, Anna Greta, your work is looking in particular at the health packs of smoke and heat, and what are the trends that we're seeing in terms of temperature increases? And what does that mean across Australia and for different places in Australia? Um, So, yes, I think heat is one of the big issues that we're going to face in terms of the health impacts of climate change. And um, uh, in Australia, it's a particular issue that we need to pay perhaps a little bit more attention to. One of the issues that's that's less discussed in the heat sphere is the regional variability. And so if we look at some of the modelling that's been done about temperature change under various scenarios of our changing climate across Australia, there will be parts of Australia where heat stress becomes dominant. So there are parts of Australia where the summer can be very uh, hot and humid, and it's a combination often of heat and humidity, which makes the habitability particularly troublesome. And there are part, there are, there's modelling that's been done that shows that the increase in heat stress days, particularly across the north part of Australia, will be significant. 
We are expecting to see some trend in terms of mortality that goes with that. Um, the data that we have so far has suggested around 2% of Australian mortality may be attributable to hot weather and to hot temperatures and to heat wave type events. Uh, but we do need to get more nuance, I think, into our health data so that we can make a better prediction into the future. What we all know from our experience is that living in those heat uh, hot, intense environments for protracted periods of time can have detrimental effects to our health, our mental health, our physical health and well-being. And I think these are some questions that we really need to be looking into. Quentin, you've recently written um, with your colleague Sonia Atka at the National University of Singapore um, about the interactions between socioeconomic disadvantage and the experiences of the bushfires in Australia in 2019-2020. Yes, I have. And, and that's a paper that's going to be published very shortly in Climatic Change. And so Sonia took the lead on, on that work. And what we did was an analysis looking at um, fire hazard or wildfire hazard, uh, which looks at the extent and and also distance to settlement uh, over large parts of, of Australia over that period of time, 2019-20. And Can I ask you, Quentin, just, just as yeah. a little treat for the methodologists yeah. who are listening yeah. in, yeah. Um, without going into so much detail yeah. that the non-methodologists are lost, yeah. um, how, did, how did you go about that research? Was that using existing data sets or exactly. what did you do? It was existing data sets. So, so we've had reasonable data sets uh, in Australia, but we put some of the data together to be able to come up with a, our own particular measure of, 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 of uh, hazard measure. And of course, in terms of socioeconomic disadvantage, those measures already exist. Australia Bureau of Statistics have those sorts of numbers. And so we use those numbers at a, a statistical area one and was able to look at the, the impact of that with a whole range of controls because there's a whole range of things that determine the, the impact associated with, um, with bushfires or wildfires. And we were able to make a, a determination that uh, those communities, those people who were in those areas that have the worst socioeconomic uh, disadvantage or the worst, the worst, worst off, uh, actually uh, were the most vulnerable uh, to uh, wildfire hazards in, in 2019-20. And so that may not come as a surprise to some people, uh, depending <laughs> on how well they know Australia or how they well they know that this literature. But it's certainly an important message. And that important message is that uh, the impacts of wildfires or the impacts of floods or the impact of a variety of these natural disasters that are climate-related or weather-related are, of course, not just uniform. In other words, that people who are in the worst context, in the context of their income, in terms of their ability to respond, in terms of the bounce back, those are the people who are the most vulnerable and they're the ones who get the hit the, the worst. So in a flooding situation, people don't have enough money to, to, to for, afford insurance. And they say, well, why don't they do that? Well, because the cheaper houses are on the floodplain. So, so that's the only place they can get a house. So on the floodplain, depending where you are, I was in Townsville just uh, a week and a half ago. Uh, in the, there were floods there in 2017, for example. You'd be paying eight to $9,000 a year. Uh, and a low income, you can't afford to pay that. And in other places, you'd be paying $35,000 a year insurance uh, for, for, for a house. So those are the sorts of situations and the places that uh, that exist now, now in Australia that are uninsurable. 
you, you, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what you pay, you can't basically insure your property because it's viewed as a high risk, such a high risk situation. So, so you can see the people who have the least income will be the ones who will be in those situations in terms of not being able to afford insurance. But that also comes with a whole set of other issues. So it's not just themselves, the individual, and the household, it's also about the community. And these uh, you know, communities of disadvantage exist in, in terms of their the close proximity to each other. So they're not randomly located in, in, in different places. They are uh, clearly in, in, in particular locations. And those are the places that uh, also suffer from the least uh, ability in to, to, to manage in those situations, both in terms of before the fires come, but also to manage after the fires have, have actually happened. And so the implication of our work is, I think, fairly straightforward. <laughs> Um, if we've got a bucket of money to deal with wildfire in terms of prevention, in terms of fuel reduction, in terms of putting in fire barriers, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of training, in terms of – we need to make sure that those funds are allocated in a disproportionate way to support vulnerable and certainly uh, communities that are in low socioeconomic advantage or, or greatest disadvantage. That's a, that's a clear implication in, in terms of our work. So uh, that's not how it happens. So typically, uh, we will direct our resources to those places which have the, the uh, high population densities, uh, typically higher income, and that's where resources get allocated. So, so we need to make sure there's a redistribution to ensure that those people who are most vulnerable actually do get extra support for, the, for, for where they are and the, the ability to, to respond and, uh, both be, you know, before and after uh, an event. Quentin, you um, you pointed out that your research identifies those communities that are particularly at risk because of disadvantage. Were you able to see whether there are particular groups within those communities that are the most marginalised, or is it really the community that starts to determine the, the extent of vulnerability? We, we just looked at community, but but clearly even within a community, there will be people who will be more disadvantaged than others. So, for example, you take a poor community, there'll be some people who don't even have a car. Okay, so let's just work that out when there's a wildfire coming towards you. You don't have a vehicle to get into and drive away. So you're absolutely dependent on friends, family, whatever to, to take you out of there because there's no way that you can run from a wildfire. So that, that's an, just one example where you become more vulnerable even in a poor community. And then, of course, there's a, a range of activities that could you could do before the event happens. Remember, of course, Black Summer was a very special period of time in terms of the dryness, in terms of the temperature, catastrophic wildfires. So a lot of things that people would have tried to do and did do just wouldn't have worked. But nevertheless, in, the, in a standard, if you want to call that type of fire year, there are a number of activities that can at least reduce your, your risk. But those activities are dependent on having equipment, depending on having training, depending on even, as I just said, had a vehicle, uh, dependent on and, and actually having um, the opportunity to do that. If you're a casual worker, it, it may be difficult to be able to do a whole range of different things that to, 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 to support yourself or reduce your risks. So yes, uh, clearly it's going to vary within a community. Community. We did not do that analysis. It's within a particular community. So whatever the individuals are, we, we haven't done that analysis. Next step, maybe, of the research. <laughs> but Anna Greta, I, I wanted to turn to you now and um, ask about both your research and your clinical work. What do you see in terms of these interactions um, between smoke and heat and socioeconomic disadvantage? 
Well, I think that Quentin's just painted the picture, really, that these risks are interchangeable. And so if we think about our model of, our, of health or illness, about the biological disease, which we often get our health data, we define things like as heart, heart disease or lung disease or cancers. There are a series of things in our environment around us that will influence the rates of disease. And the social determinants of health are well understood. And the life expectancy gaps that are demonstrated around the world between very high socioeconomic groups and lower socioeconomic groups can be quite extraordinary up to some decades, particularly of disability-free life expectancy. So we know that these socio socioeconomic factors, education, uh, the way in which our communities operate can make a big difference to life expectancy. So on top of that, we've got this threat magnifier or threat uh, alterer of the environment. So the, the environment in which we live. And there are tremendous advantages to living in beautiful natural environments. We know that that's good for our health and well-being, but we're also potentially a more vulnerable population when we're exposed to things like heat in the urban heat island effect in, in our outer, outer suburbs of Sydney and in Melbourne, the socioeconomically precarious populations living in accommodation where much more likely to have difficulty with access to air, to air, air purification and to air conditioning in during very significant periods of heat. And so the interrelationship between the environmental determinants of health and worse health outcome for an already disadvantaged population, I think, is already understood in some of the literature. Quentin, um, we, we will take a break in a moment. But before we do, I just wanted to ask you a little about the research that you also do on, on water and water justice and to ask whether we see similar interactions between socioeconomic status and access to increasingly scarce water supplies um, in Australia but also internationally. Yeah, good question, Sharon. Yes, absolutely we see that. So the, it's the poor and vulnerable who have the least or worst as, access to water. So that when I say access to water, it's access to water in terms of drinking water. It's for bathing purposes. It's for washing. It's cleaning, of course. And it's also uh, in terms of sanitation. So those people on the lowest income level, those people with the least uh, secure housing are the people who typically uh, have the, the worst ac access. And when I say worst access, that access uh, in an Australian context means that, that most of us in Australia live in large metropolitan centres. Now the water is perfectly safe to drink, and I we will drink it, uh, you know, twenty four seven, and uh, we expect that to have be that quality. But if we go to to remote communities in Australia, there's water there that most Australians, you know, more than ninety percent of Australians would not drink. They would not drink it. If they were living in Sydney and Melbourne, and they got that water coming out of the tap, uh, there'd be a change in government. That's that's the nature of the water quality that we're talking about. So uh, there's a variety of uh, examples to point to, uranium contamination in, in bore, uh, fluoride contamination. There's also PFAS contamination that's uh, a pollutant. There's, there's a variety of reasons why that happens. There's organic pollutants. And so it's smaller communities in remote areas. Those particular communities are the ones that suffer the most from from poor access or, or very low quality access in terms of in terms of water and again it's a similar sort of story it requires resources to provide that it's not difficult to provide high quality water it, uh, we have access to groundwater we can do a variety of treatments reverse osmosis for example there's a number of things that can be done as long as there's proper monitoring proper control but it requires resources and if you add up all these people who are in these remote communities, 
I don't know what the number is. We're working on it right now in the Water Justice Hub, but it's in the tens of thousands. So the population of Australia is, is more than 26 million. So tens of thousands is, is a lot of people in my, from my perspective. They're distributed over different parts of, of primarily northern Australia. And uh, they don't count when it comes to uh, adequate resourcing for, for their needs in terms of water. And we signed up, uh, among other countries, for sustainable development goals for 2030, which includes water for all. And we're still not going to deliver that in Australia unless we do something about it now, you know, actually act, make sure that we can start putting the resources in. And uh, it's straightforward to do. It's, it's, it's technically very straightforward to do this, but uh, we haven't done it yet. Instead, we're putting uh, billions of dollars, that's thousands of millions of dollars, into water infrastructure for building dams or for irrigation purposes. Yeah, we're not allocating those funds for those sorts of purposes. So yeah, and it's a bigger picture story than just Australia. There's all sorts of places in the world where the poor don't have access. So for example, they're in settlement type situations, so they don't have uh, a tenure in terms of the land or in terms of the structure that they're in. And so they don't even have pipe water, whatever that is. So they have to get, get it uh, carted in or they bring it in themselves. That's in an urban context. And of course, if you go into a rural context and a home, whole variety of countries in the world, then, then there's, there's no such thing as a, as a centralized system. You have to go out there and get the water either from a, from a lake, from a groundwater or from a stream or something like that. Typically women are the one, uh, are the ones who collect that water. Uh, and in some parts of the world, um, they, they spend hours, hours a day collecting that water. It's a, it's a very tedious, difficult, uh, challenging task just to, just to get enough water to drink and, and do some basic bathing. So, so those are the sorts of things that are happening globally. Those are the sorts of things that are happening in Australia. And it is absolutely connected to socioeconomic disadvantage. I think I can feel a, a podcast coming on in the future that mm. is focusing specifically on water justice. Mm. Um, and I know in the work that we did around multidimensional poverty in Indonesia, uh, in the remote islands off the coast of South Sulawesi, um, almost 60% of people didn't have access to hand washing facilities in their own homes. So in the context of COVID, you know, this is, is really catastrophic. But I think for now, we will take a short break um, and we will come back to talk a little more um, about bushfires and vulnerability. So stay with us, listeners. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. 
Welcome back. We're here talking with Quentin Grafton and Anna Greta Hunter about the impacts and particularly the impacts on the most vulnerable of the bushfires that we saw in Australia in 2019-2020. And I wanted to turn now to looking forward and thinking about some of the things that we need to do. Quentin, you started talking before the break about prevention. And obviously one critically important strategy is prevention of fires in the first place. You mentioned the different approaches taken depending on the socioeconomic status of a community. Can you just talk a little more about that and the differences that we see across communities, including one of the issues that you raised in your recent article with with Sonia Atka that I thought was both interesting and disturbing, which was around the role of professional and volunteer firefighters across different communities. So what are we seeing in terms of prevention? Well, so prevention is uh, there's sort of three aspects to it. One is the, the reducing the, the fuel uh, load. Another one is putting in sort of fire, fire barriers, so that's the prevention activity. And then the other one is a sort of a, a data system, centralized survey system, and making sure that if their fire does get started, that you can react quickly. So those are sort of three things that you do, two before one, I suppose, uh, during during the fire season. So it, let's say the state of New South Wales, I think there's around 7,000 or so professional firefighters and they do a wonderful job. So let me just give a plug for firefighters, <laughs> uh, Yay, both, firefighters. both professional and volunteer who, yeah. put yep. their, who put their lives on the line and firefighters did die uh, during the 2019-20 uh, Black Summer. Uh, so they put their lives on the line and some of them lost their lives. So, so these firefighters um, are primarily in the towns and cities. And uh, so they're professionals, so they're, they're trained to, to, to do that job and they do it very well. But as you move out further out into the regional parts of, of Australia or New South Wales, then you get to smaller communities, uh, then you start to rely more heavily on volunteer firefighters and you can have them working professionals and volunteers working alongside each other. Of course, there's around 70,000, I I believe, uh, in New South Wales who are these volunteer firefighters. And uh, they do get training, uh, but the the training will depend on uh, their ability to attend, which of course is dependent on their mobility, which is dependent on their job or those sorts of factors. Uh, and equipment also is also an issue as well. You know whether you know whether that how that equipment gets uh, distributed. So those factors come into play, and it's not that there's anything necessarily sinister about it. It's just that the, that the factors come into play as you move out from a from a core central uh, location, a city, towns, and then smaller towns, and then I go further and further out. The the ability to 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 be able to manage that in an effective way uh, diminishes. Uh, certainly when a fire occurs. And so those people who are in those locations, which have the lower property values, the land values are typically much lower, they're the ones become more vulnerable. So they're more exposed in the context of, 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 of uh, wildfires, but, but they're also more vulnerable for the reasons that we've already outlined. And so to overcome their socioeconomic disadvantage, we need to ensure that they get uh, proportionately more per capita in the, in the context of making sure that their resources are sufficiently adequate to try to compensate for the challenges that, that, that they face. And uh, that's uh, the bottom line, uh, essentially the conclusion of our work. Uh, that's outside of my professional expertise to say how that should be done. I'm not in that business or line of business, but but that's certainly what our results are telling us. And it's probably not a surprise to a, 
uh, to people as well who who, who know this uh, this sector very well. But certainly, that's what the data tells us, and that tells us that we need to to do uh, do 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 it differently. And we can do it differently. And it's a question of not only increasing the pie as as required. Uh, but it's also a, a question of making sure that's allocated in a way that uh, those communities that uh, are most vulnerable are, are adequately looked after, uh, especially before an event happens. Because when a big catastrophe happens in 2019-20, when there's fires all over, all over the place, there is a very limited number of fire uh, fighters available, and so you just you just bring it to a core. To, to protect you know larger larger locations, so you have to do it before this, these events mm, arise yep. uh, to make sure that those those risks are, 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 are mitigated. They can't obviously go to zero, but mitigated in those locations where people are in particularly low low socioeconomic. Uh, advantage or, or greatest disadvantage. And look, that's one of the most, um, oh, I guess it's an often quoted part of that whole Black Summer experience, that unprecedented is not an excuse for being unprepared. Um, and if if listeners are thinking about how we might prepare for the future, I, I really commend that Royal Commission into Nas- National Natural Disaster Arrangements. It's quite an extraordinary document that goes through in detail both the sorts of things that we might be contending with as well as offering a framework analysis on what we might do. And I think one of the most important starting points is recognising, as we've already discussed, that that summer experience may simply have been a taster for what we may be contending with over the next 50 years. If we start to actually build some of the climate science into our policy framework, preparing for environmental challenges that will evolve over Australia in the coming decades is going to be a test of our imagination. And one of my favourite phrases from that Royal Commission do- uh, document is the the phrase "strategic imagination." We we do we you know the, the Black Summer experience. I, I know there are many people who were calling for better preparation. There are a whole series of very good ideas about how we could have been better prepared, and yet that Black Summer experience tested our imagination. I, I um, had spent time worrying about it. I didn't imagine the smoke. We hadn't prepared adequately for a bushfire smoke emergency. We'd prepared for drought and for water and for heat and for fire, but we hadn't prepared anywhere near as much for smoke. And so that's an imagination failure and we need to do better in terms of imagining the sorts of challenges ahead. I think health health prism is quite an interesting way to think about better preparation because we want to provide a framework that allows for the individual to health to be best protected. That often involves engaging communities and working together locally on the ground. And that means in vulnerable communities, in, in less vulnerable communities, but it's particularly important for those small towns and smaller centres around Australia who are often much more vulnerable to extreme weather events, so flooding and fire and and in fact, protracted drought can offer a similar sort of model. There is a tremendous amount of research that's going on at the moment looking at community uh, adaptation strategies, and I think that's really where we need to be spending some more time. With our imagination hat on, trying to imagine a future which we're not going to want to contend with, and there was that quite remarkable piece in the conversation just recently, imagining Australia at a three-degree world in the future. Um, this will challenge us emotionally, it challenges psychologically, but unless we go into some of those really difficult territories, we're going to find ourselves yet again woefully underprepared. Anna Greta, can you give us an example perhaps of just one of those community adaptation strategies that we need to be thinking imaginatively about? Do we have some examples? 
Look, there's some really interesting research that's been done out of RMIT. I've just been speaking recently over the last couple of months with one of the researchers down there on resilience adaptation plans for small regional centres. And it's an opportunity for groups for, for in, in a regional centre. We're often living in towns like that because of, of uh, all sorts of different reasons, um, including the fact that they can be great places to live. But they're often really climate-vulnerable environments with forestry nearby or drought-vulnerable, heat-vulnerable environments. So the sorts of things that are available there are for communities to sit down and to work their way through what are our local assets? What are the things that make living here great? What is it about the people? What is it about the place? What are our natural assets? What are our vulnerabilities? What are our climate vulnerabilities? How vulnerable are we to a heat wave event? What's the resources that we have around that? How can we defend ourselves against bushfire in a more convincing way? And I've been having some of these conversations. I have a place down in northern Victoria. We talk about bushfire risk in a really difficult environment where if we're up against the climactic conditions we had over New South Wales in 2019, we're facing catastrophic risk in Victoria uh, at some point if, if those variables fall. And so we're raising the idea of what is indefensible. So if you've got areas that might be very high uh, bushfire vulnerability, is this area defensible? Can we save our forest? Can we save our infrastructure? What are we prepared to commit as a society to do that? And I think that's a key question. Sharon, I'm afraid I think it comes back to some of our other conversations about what we value in our community. And I think if we value our people, the people who we share space with and our place, then we would invest some more time and effort into making what might be less easily defended, more easily defended against these extreme weather events. We've talked a lot about the Australian context today, but of course, globally, there are major issues. And Quentin, we already started to talk about those in relation to, to water. Um, but we see these major issues playing out around poverty, disadvantage and vulnerability to natural disasters. Are there lessons from Australia's experience that we can apply globally that are useful for, for other countries in thinking about um, how to both respond and prevent these situations? I think there are lessons. Uh, I think there's lessons from successes and there's lessons from failures. So there's one lesson that comes to mind from 2019 is that when you have experts and professionals knocking on the door of a prime minister or whatever it might be, those people should be listened to. And uh, it's not you wouldn't expect a prime minister or president to have all the answers. I wouldn't expect that person. But if you've uh, got a bunch of experts knocking on your door, you, you, I think you should listen to them and, and follow through in terms of working out how you can prioritize the limited resources, which some countries have very limited resources, not like Australia. And maybe but, some of those experts have some of the answers. Maybe they do. <laughs> maybe they do. But, but Anna Greta's point was very well taken. So experts will be expert typically in one or two narrow areas. That's typically what defines an expert in some sense. They can't be an expert of everything. So I think it's the issue of communities and engaging with those communities in terms of their priorities and their needs. And that requires you know, various processes that allows it to feed up into, a, into the, the, the decision-making uh, echelons. And that's, uh, that's another conversation about deliberative democracy. But, but, but the issue about social and economic injustice is that those people do not have voice or, or that they have voice. I mean, it's not like they don't, it's not that they that don't have voice. It's just that no one is listening. No one's listening to what they have to say. So that's, that has to change and it has to change in Australia and has to change in other places in the world as well. So until and unless we have a, a true robust, 
representative democracy where we can have those sorts of conversations and listening to the people, then we are going to continue to make those mistakes, whether it's in COVID, whether it's in wildfire, whether it's in water, flooding, whatever it might be, uh, we are going to continue to make those mistakes. So there's a there's a discussion right now about increasing the dam wall, uh, <laughs> the major dam at at, at, uh, at Sydney. You know, so so having that discussion and debate about with community as well as with experts is critical to making sure we make the right decisions. And if we don't make those decisions and we don't make them in a timely way, we're going to suffer huge consequences. So as was uh, alluded to and mentioned a few times, the issue of climate change is, is right on the agenda right now, not only in terms of bushfires, sea level rise. There is a huge context and, and consequence associated with sea level rise, particularly in Australia, but in many other countries. And so we've got to prepare for that. We've got to do something about it. And we need to do it now. And it's not about, well, wish we would just go away. Well, it's not just going to go away. We have to prepare and plan. And we need to make sure it doesn't get uh, – that the expenditures don't just go to the people who have very expensive houses right on the beach, <laughs> that, 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 that the resources are allocated in a way that would look after the most vulnerable. That's the sort of lessons that we, I think we can share. I think this conversation is one that we will return to several times again over the course of this year. There, there are so many issues that we've been that have been raised that we can go into a little deeper. Um, and I think that theme, Anna Greta, as you noted, that keeps coming up again and again and again of listening is just so fundamentally important. I just wanted to, to wrap up by asking each of you in brief, if you had just one piece of advice for the government – the, the Australian government I'm talking about here, in terms of first steps, what we need to do now, what would that piece of advice be? Anna Greta, perhaps you can, can lead off. Look, I am a big fan of that Royal Commission document and I would ask the government to sit down and form a multi-party group that actually begins the conversation, that starts with scenario outcome planning around what happens as the temperature rises, looking at the sorts of climate vulnerabilities we have around this country, thinking about the health of our population and the health of the continent on which we live. That would be an extraordinary first step. And from that, I do think that by starting with acknowledging the science and the sorts of threats that we might be up against, that we'll be in a much better place to move forward. Quentin. I concur, follow through the Royal Commission when it comes to the bushfires, but I'd say foresighting. Mm. So that's just the process of looking into the future, visioning that future and making sure that we don't end up in the place we don't want to be, that we actually do something now to have a different future. And if we don't do that, then we're going to be in seriously bad ways. So that's what I'd recommend we do. Quentin and Anna Greta, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such an incredibly informative conversation. And as I said, one that I think we will come back to multiple times this year. Thank you too to our listeners for joining us. And don't forget to reach out to us. You can contact us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum, that's A-P-P-S Policy Forum, or you can contact us by email at podcast at policyforum.net. Probably the best way to get in touch with us is to join our Facebook group. You can just type Policy Forum Pod into the search bar and you will find us there. Don't forget to leave us a review. We love to hear your feedback. We love to hear your suggestions for the kinds of issues we should be talking about on the pod. And you can subscribe to us 
wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. Acast, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we're on all of those platforms. As always, a huge thanks to our producer, Angus Blackman, and we will be back again with another episode next week. But for now, from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.